From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to It's All Political, the Chronicle's political podcast. Our guest today is Van Jones. I've known Van for years, decades, back when he was a rabble-rouser in the streets of San Francisco and Oakland. And so today he's going to be talking about those days, how he hated Willie Brown and rips Willie Brown. And he's going to tell us how Prince, Prince, Little Red Corvette Prince, pulled him out of his depression at one of the darkest times of his life. And it's, it's really fascinating. And he's also going to talk about his new book. Stay tuned. It's all political. Welcome to It's All Political, the Chronicle's political podcast. We are here in the Chronicle Basement Archives with our guest, Van Jones. Now, the rest of America knows Van from... Uh, on CNN as a political commentator. He's written now three best-selling books. This new one's best-seller. Now, already a best-seller. I'm super, super happy about that. Already a best-seller. And it's just released. It's called Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart and How We Come Together, and which we'll be talking about here. And it's, it's about how people on the left and the right can actually work together on some issues. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough love letter to the progressives. It's a tough love letter to the conservatives. Uh, both parties got to look in the mirror. You don't get a nightmare orange disaster in the White House like we have if you have two healthy political parties or even one healthy political party. So that that's about two-thirds of the book. But there's another third of the book that is literally just stuff we could be doing right now that could make a positive difference even though we have these, these political differences. So, and he's been an environmental advisor to President Obama. He co-founded the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and, and Color of Change here in the Bay Area, as well as organizations like Yes, We Code, also big presence in the Bay Area, and that's aimed at getting more people of color into the tech world. But he, we here in Oakland and San Francisco remember him, and I first met him yes. way back in the day, as, uh, as bald middle-aged men say back in the day, <laughs> Uh, as uh, as a, as an activist, a street activist back in the day. Yep. And that was uh, more than two decades ago here in uh, San Francisco and Oakland. Ban was talking about police brutality and cataloging it and calling out elected leaders in a way that few had before. And Ban's made a career out of being way out in the front of the curve on a lot of things, on police brutality, overcrowded prisons, on green jobs, on making Silicon Valley more diverse. And a lot of those ideas were forged right here in the Bay Area. They sure and they're were. very much described in the book. So it, yeah. this is a lot of local references in the book. Well, you know, it's good to be back in the Bay. Uh, I came here in 1992 uh, to be an intern for the great legendary Eva Jefferson Patterson. Uh, still, I guess, you know, the foremost civil rights uh, legal voice in the Bay. I was her intern. And uh, the uh, Rodney King yes. verdicts came down. And yes. all of a sudden... Uh, the whole country's in uproar. I, following Eva's direction, go down uh, to catalog as a, just a legal monitor some of the protests, got my butt arrested, and um, I fell in with uh, people who I, I know and love to this day, but they were on the left side of Pluto. Uh, I mean, you know, every kind of ist, Marxist and anarchist and radical feminist and every kind of istinism. And um, and I said, hey, I, I, I'm coming back here. So I graduated, came back, started your plane ticket to leave. Tom. I had a plane ticket to leave in my book bag. And I said, you know what? I'm not leaving. Um, I did go back ultimately and finish up at, at Yale Law School, came back out here and 
to your point, back when people weren't talking about uh, uh, police brutality so much, you know, after Rodney King, it kind of went away. Uh, people, we were building prisons left and right across the country. And before we even had the term mass incarceration, uh, I helped to start the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights to try to push back. And so I've been a uh, grassroots frontline activist for a long time. Tell uh, a couple things on that. You, uh, Eva said she hired you because uh, you, you applied in a little piece of stationery yes. that had the little faces drawn across the top, little stencils of little guys with dreads. And she said, oh, we're, we're hiring him. Yes. Uh, so you were out here to monitor, as you say, the, the King riots. And I think we don't have to do this, but remember, this was 25 years ago. Yes. Uh, Rodney King, just to, to oh, remind sure, people remind who people. he is. That's yeah, true. we got to remind people who he is. Wow. Rodney King, I know, was beaten dozens of times. He was a, guy, was a motorist. He was beaten dozens of times by black several guy. black guy, uh, by uh, several Los Angeles police officers. And this was one of the first incidents, incidents that was caught on video. Yes. Yeah, now, you know, everybody's got a video camera in their back pocket. At the time, uh, video cameras were very, very rare. Um, and yet somebody had finally caught uh, four, SF, uh, four uh, Los Angeles police officers, all white, just beating the crap out of this guy. And we all thought, well, we finally got him. You know, caught on film. It's over. And the jury said, nah, no problem. And if you're a young African-American at that time, as I was, that sounded like open season on people like me. And you know, at the time, I'm a law student at Yale. I'm reading about equal protection under the law and liberty and justice. And I'm looking at television, watching somebody get the crap beat out of them. And the jury says it's okay. And so uh, for me, that was, my, that was a, a, a life-defining moment. And then to go out there and, and try to monitor a peaceful protest with people exercising their First Amendment rights and to get arrested for standing there, um, I said, man, there's something wrong with the system. And like I said, I went to the, I went to the left side of Pluto. Um, I'm, I'm proud of that younger version of myself uh, for the courage and the idealism uh, that I think a lot of us showed, uh, showed at that time. And I also feel now I'm, I, I'm proud of myself for some of the courage and hopefully the pragmatism uh, to make sure that this Donald Trump thing never happens again. And that's really what the book is about. Yeah. You said at the time I was a rowdy nationalist on April 28th, and then the verdicts came down on April 29th. By August, I was a communist. I told you, I was every ist every, I could find. <laughs> and <you, laughs> there's probably some other ist, too, yeah, along so the way. What, um, tell us about when you're – do you remember that night? It was in the Mission District. Can you remember yeah. the, what, what happened at the, at the Yeah, at the sure. Well, uh, uh, Dolores Park, you had a whole bunch of um, uh, young people who went there. there was, it was a group at the time called Roots Against War, RAW. And it was a bunch of young people of color uh, who had uh, organized against the first Iraq war. And they were still around, and they called a big, a big uh, protest. And I think they had a lot. They were. It was okay for them to to rally in the park, but they didn't have a permit to march. But they decided to march anyway. And um, but they weren't doing anything. They were just marching and anyway. So the police uh, stopped the march, and then half of them just ran away. And my stupid butt, I didn't know, know any better. I'm like just doing whatever the cops said. And everybody who didn't run away, the cops arrested and put in jail. And so I was like, wait a minute. I was doing what the police told me to do. And um, you know, and so. Um, so what would that tell you? Well, I mean, at the time, uh, what I made it mean was that there's something really wrong with the system. Then we need to fight back. And I'm proud of myself. You know, we went out uh, after, after, after I graduated from law school, we raised um, uh, money from a few small donors. We launched something called Bay Area Police Watch, which was a police misconduct lawyer referral service. 
and the, and we had a relational computer database, which at the time yeah. that was like you know better than Facebook. I mean, like people were like, "Holy crap, these guys have like law degrees and computer you know databases," and we were able to track problem officers, problem precincts, and problem practices in nine Bay Area counties, and started bringing coordinated litigation and protests. And we got one of the worst police officers in San Francisco history, a guy named Mark Andaya, fired for beating and stomping and pepper spraying to death an African American uh, man. And you we refer all, to him as uh, San Francisco's Mark Furman. San Francisco's Mark Furman. People who remember the O.J. Simpson case remember there was a racist police officer in that case called Mark Furman. And I said Willie Brown's police commission is protecting Bay Area's Mark Furman, and Mark Furman. I mean, and Mark Andaya is using pepper spray as a lynch rope in a can. Uh, and the local media said, holy crap, who is this kid? <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> it was, here's another one. I think, and, and uh, if, if Willie Brown refuses to fire a racist police officer, then the blood is on his hands. Yep. And this is, this is one that I, that I love. I think that San Francisco prides itself on its liberal image and wants to cover up the treatment of certain people. It likes to think of itself as this shiny castle on the hill, but as a dungeon as far as treatment of certain people is concerned. Do you yeah. remember that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't remember that exactly, but, you know, what I learned here in the Bay Area was, you know, at that time, Willie Brown was this big, untouchable god. Um, you know, he won, you know, this, he had been, you know, the most powerful person in the state for a generation. Uh, he he, he was, became mayor in a walkover. And uh, he had an alliance with the police officers union, the the SFPOA, and uh, the the cops thought they could do no wrong. And uh, but here I was, a new kid in the in the town, a young black guy. Uh, I didn't know Willie Brown, uh, and a lot of people were scared to say anything about Willie Brown. But I wasn't scared, and I and I realized that if I could 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 capture the feelings of the community and put them into words. That you could get, you know, the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle uh, to, to 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 raise the issue, and you know, uh, I, to this day, I think Willie Brown, you know, thinks I'm a. Oh, I, I can I can personally <laughs> testify to that. When I if I ever mention your name in front of Willie, once in a while we do TV together, his his boy, he turns, yeah. he turns. Well, I was fire is in his eyes still. Hey, listen, twenty I, years later. Well, hey, and uh, uh, you know, I got what I wanted. I wanted a new police commission, and I got it. I wanted police reform, and I got it. And I wanted Mark and Dia gone, and I got it. And when you beat a Willie Brown, and you're still in your 20s, and you've been in town for just a couple of years, uh, you know, you, you get the sense that a lot more is possible than people often think. And, um, you know, that's one of the good things about the Bay Area. You can come here with big, crazy dreams no matter what they are. And you're going to find people who will be willing to encourage you, support you, give you a shot. And that's what the Bay Area did for me. And he did a lot of, a lot of more uh, juvenile justice work and, and, and uh, also adult justice work, campaigning against building a super prison for uh, juveniles. Yeah, and we Alameda stopped County. that thing. We, we, we stopped the, the that? California, there was going to be a super jail for kids in Oakland. Explain the, what, the, what the concept was. Well, they were going to build the biggest per capita juvenile hall in the country. A little bit of the Alameda County was going to have a juvenile hall, a jail for kids, bigger than the one in Chicago Cook County, which is, I think, like the third biggest city in the country. It was going to be this massive monument to racism and stupidity and abuse. And they had already gotten the federal grant approved and the state grant. I mean, this thing was going to happen. 
and we got a bunch of youngsters, uh, you know, hip hop artists, spoken word artists, uh, and and we stopped that thing. I and mean, we had some of the most exciting and dramatic protests and sit-ins led by young people. And finally, the, Cal- the Alameda County Board of Supervisors uh, just said, you know what, we're going to send the money back. We're not going to build this thing. And they wound up rebuilding the existing hall at, you know, at, a, at a much smaller size. And again, that just showed to me, and this is again in the early 2000s. Oh, and by the way, the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, our campaign, our Books Not Bars campaign, went on after I you know, was no longer uh, a staff member, I was still on the board, went on to close five abusive youth prisons working with our allies and helped to cut the California youth prison population by about 80 percent with no increase in youth violence or youth crime. So before Black Lives Matter you know, got out there and Michelle Alexander wrote the new Jim Crow and Ava DuVarnay has the, you know, the 13th or whatever, way before that, I was blessed to be a part of real fights and victorious fights to try to push back on mass incarceration back in the 90s, early 2000s. But this, this, and you're right about this in the book, this was exhausting work for you. And yes. you kind of burn out at I, that I, point. I kind of burn out. I mean, it's like, I, I was like, I, you know, crispy for Cocoa Puffs or whatever. It's like, I was, I was really, really um, emotionally drained. I mean, you, I mean, you guys know how it is. You, you start working on these tough issues in these urban environments. You know, now I'm well known. People are turning my phone calls. You know, we have to show up with 50 people just to get the intern you know, at City Hall to pay attention right. to us. I mean, and so you have to, you know, when you're fighting those kind of fights, where you're, your back's against the wall, your client or your constituency has nothing, and every single inch you get, you have to fight a war for, you get tired. You get tired of going to funerals uh, with young people in the caskets and, and old people sitting up in the pews, which is the opposite of what it's supposed to be. You get tired of these coalition meetings, you know, everybody starts fighting. I mean, once you... You know, most time you lose, and then you lose. Everybody goes to the end fighting, and so I I got tired, and it was it was here in the Bay Area. I, I went over to Marin County, and started going to retreat centers, meditation stuff, and I learned a lot about spirituality, and I also discovered all the green uh, economy that was growing over there, and that made a big difference. And that's how you got uh, involved in uh, sort of the green economy. You said uh, you're largely before a lot of other people. We could be make there could be a lot of jobs here, green. Uh, industry jobs. Yeah, wrote uh, one of your bestsellers about that. And then in uh, 2009, President Obama appointed you as a green jobs advisor in the White House. That's mm-hmm. my God. That's I mean, there you- yeah, it was it was one of the most amazing kinds of uh, developments because here we are in the Bay Area, and we're we're you know, we notice in Oakland, you know, the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights at that point is in Oakland. We've got a d- couple of projects working on juvenile violence, juvenile justice, police brutality. And we notice all these bills getting passed for solar support at the state level. We notice all these companies springing up everywhere with green this and clean energy that, and no jobs for young African Americans, young Latinos, young Asian American kids here in the Bay Area. I said, hold on a second. This is the most important work that needs to be done repowering America with clean energy. Let's give it to the kids who most need the work, and we can fight pollution and poverty at the same time. And we got passionate about that, and we got the Oakland City Council uh, to create something called the Oakland Green Jobs Corps and put about $100,000 on the table to start teaching young folks from mostly off the street corners how to put up solar panels. And a miracle then happened because Nancy Pelosi found out about it, and she had just become Speaker of the House, third most powerful person in the U.S. government. And she thought it was the neatest idea in the world. And she reaches out to me, a young grassroots, well, at that point in my 30s, yeah. but a grassroots activist 
frontline activist and takes me to Washington, D.C., has me testify in front of different committees about what we're doing. And a guy named George W. Bush signs a bill called the, the Green Jobs Act of 2007. Um, the only thing Pelosi and, and W. agreed on the whole time was my bill to spread that, a similar program across the country. And I wrote a book about 2008. The book became a bestseller, and a guy named Barack Obama read the book. When, what did that tell you about, you know, here, here you go from you know, just a few years earlier, you're a socialist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, now, and now you're working with, uh, you know, the, uh, President George W. Bush. What did that tell you about? Is that where you started to figure out it was like it's, it's less about bomb throwing and more about coalition building? Is that, did that help you? You know, a couple of things happened. I mean, one thing which, I, you know, I kind of skipped over. I became a dad in the middle of all that. You know, my first son was born in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, George W. Bush won re-election in 2004. Um, and people forget how bad the Bush administration was. I mean, you had you know, Guantanamo and you had you know, these two wars and, and, and climate change, you know, you know going, getting worse and worse. And I'm looking around. I'm like, look, I'm in my mid-30s now. I'm not like a 20-year-old kid. I'm a dad. And this country seems like it's going in a very negative direction. We need to come with some solutions. I can't just keep fighting against what I don't want. I don't want the prisons. I don't want the violence. I don't want the police brutality. What do I want? What is my positive purpose in life? I'm looking at this little baby who is going to have to walk around on these streets. What do I want? And becoming a dad really turned me in a different direction. And I started fighting for, you know, green jobs, clean energy. And, you know, and I realized, listen, this little guy is not going to care, oh, well, this person's a Republican or this person's a capitalist, this person's whatever. They're going to want to know, hey, why can't I breathe the air? They're going to want to know, hey, how come there's, there's, there's you know, paramilitary you know, troops everywhere? How come I can't go out and play if we were going that direction? And so I have, you know, over the intervening, you know, 10-plus years, I've just made it a creed. I will work against anybody, even if it's Willie Brown, or I'll work with anybody, even if it's, uh, you know, a Newt Gingrich, if it will make a positive difference for people at the bottom. Now, you're in the job about six, seven months, and then yes. things turn south rather quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I work, <laughs> the, the best six months of my life in the Obama White House, followed by the worst six weeks, uh, <laughs> thanks to Fox News and Glenn Beck. Well, to remind everyone of this, uh, right-wing uh, media hosts like, like Glenn Beck, who was you know we don't hear as much from him anymore. Mm. It's, it's, the subscription model is not just uh, mm. keeps you keeps you hidden a little bit. Uh, he began passing around word that you signed a petition, allegedly signed a petition that said, "quote High level government officials may have deliberately allowed the se- September 11th attacks to occur." You never signed the petition. I never signed it. Never saw it. It was a complete, you know, loony bin kind of a. Didn't a, come out till a year later. Though. Yeah, but it, and it took it took the people who you know could have said something right away a year to come out and say, oh, by the way, we don't have a signature. We typed his name on a website he never saw. Um, thank you very much. But by then, um, you know, uh, you know, we you, you come under a certain amount of heat and fire. I knew that though that wasn't true. Look, I was on the left. Listen, I was known as a radical leftist in the Bay Area. <laughs> this is what you're saying something. I mean, you have yeah. to work hard. You've <laughs> got to get up early, work weekends. And so I said, listen, you know, this is a complete, you know, nonsense thing. <laughs> but, you know, there's enough stuff that I don't want the President of the United States to have to be up here trying to explain Mumia Abu Jamal and every yeah, other no. thing I've ever worked on. <laughs> yes. So even though the White House didn't want me to resign, most of the time when you go to the White House, it's because you wanted to go. And when you leave, it's because they want you to leave. 
for me, it was the opposite. I didn't want to go to the White House, but Carol Browner reached out for the president and said, we need you. My wife said, listen, you know, uh, we have to go. I said, I don't want to go. I said, we had just gotten greenforall.org off the ground. We had just gotten my first book, you know, to be a bestseller. We had just bought our first house, just had our second baby. Why am I going to move to Washington, D.C. and start over? And she said, think about Michelle Obama and those little girls. Do you think Michelle wants to move from Chicago? We're going. So most people, they go to the White House because they asked to go. I went because I was asked to go. Most people, they leave when they say, get the heck out of here. I was the opposite. I told them, them, I'm leaving. They said, no, no, no. You're going to give them a victory. We're going to fight. I said, no. I didn't come here to fight for my own job. I came here to fight for other people's jobs, and I can fight, you know, as well when I left. Now, I'll tell you what. Did the president say anything to you? I did not talk to the president directly. Uh, I did not talk to the president directly about it. But, you know, we we were, you know, communicating. I was was two levels below him, by the way. People act like like a a special advisor is kind of, you know, sitting in the White House in the Oval Office all day. Um, But um, what I didn't know at the time was as noble as it sounded – to say, I'm going to resign, you know, I'll fall on my sword for my president. The problem is, you fall on your sword, you can't get up and go, ow, ow, ow. I mean, it's painful to lose a position like that, especially under fire. And then the depression sets in, and all of a sudden, rather than, you know, being on the high, high, high of the Washington, D.C. Post and having an $80 billion budget and helping the president, you know, you can barely get out of bed. And so I went through all that as well. I want to get back to that in a second because you get into that in the book, which is uh, which I, stuff I hadn't heard before. So, which I want to I want to talk to you about that. But I want to who stood by you in the Bay Area because I remember writing about you know at that time, and I remember Newsom. Yeah. I was calling around, and yeah. I was like, "All Van has a lot of political friends here, you know, and he has you know his activist friends too." But I was like, "Who, who politicians stood by you?" Newsom did. Yes, Kamala Harris. I don't recall her. I remember making some calls to the office, and I don't remember her coming back. Really quick, strong on that. Pelosi, I don't think either. Did, who was publicly supportive of you? you know, Gavin, Al Gore was. Too. Yeah, Al Gore was publicly supportive. Gavin Newsom was unreal in his level of support. Yeah, um, he he just said, "Listen, this is just nuts." And 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 the irony of that is that Gavin Newsom was. Also, like Willie Brown, a target of a lot of my campaigns, <laughs> you know, because you know, people people you know know Gavin for being the great hero that he has become. But when he first came on the scene, you know, he was tough on homeless people. We thought he was a stooge of the corporations, and yeah. you know, we kicked his butt a lot. I mean, you know, and but uh, he, what, being just he's just an incredible human being, and he kind of got where we were coming from. And actually, I burst into uh, his. Um, he was having a meeting after a, uh, a police shooting, and I just burst into the meeting, grabbed a seat, sat down, and just started going off. <laughs> and he's sitting there with his eyebrows like about two inches off his forehead. Um, and and it, but he but he listened to my whole spiel before he had me thrown out. And um, <laughs> and uh, I think he you know he developed some respect for me, and so he. He, he said, listen, you know, Van Jones can come here and he can be my green, green czar. This is totally nuts. I wish other elected officials at that time uh, had, had the same level of courage. The reality is they didn't. Um, but uh, the great thing about it was I landed on my feet at Princeton, um, taught for a year, and then figured out, um, you know, with support from Prince, uh, the, the late rock star, that um, I, I had another, another round or two in me. To give to try to make a positive change. Uh, this this is great. Before but before we get there, I want to 
show you something that I keep on my desk. Okay. This is like, uh, now you got to be such a meme back in 2000, like, you know, okay. like that, uh, you know, that the, the California Republican, in the California Republican campaign for governor back in 2010, Meg Whitman yes. went, on a, went on a cruise, or not a cruise, but like a, yes. some sort of environmental trip to Alaska to find out what's going on up there. Mm-hmm. And she came back and she said, I'm a huge fan of Van Jones. Yes. Okay. Now, this is before all this stuff happened. And then it happened. And now, so I'm at a California Republican Party convention, and uh, his or her rival is handing out fans as people go to the door <laughs> that, that say, and I, I'm holding this up. It's a picture of Meg That's Whitman hilarious. saying, I'm a huge fan of Van Jones. Yes, and exactly. I, and I, do, I, think, I don't know if I've ever shown hey, you this before. No, I've never seen it. I, I love a good picture of it. But, yeah. but, but here's what's so important, because eventually we're going to get back to my book, uh, yes, Beyond yeah. the Messy Truth. But I was, people act like, you know, racism and crazy extremism just came to America in November. I was one of the first victims of this whole thing. I mean, yeah. the, the whole crazy right wing attack thing got going against the um, against uh, Acorn. Remember the Acorn? Right. They yeah. lied on Acorn and took Acorn's funding away, destroyed that organization. Lied on me, came after me, went after Shirley Sherrod. Um, and so people say, "Well, Van Jones, my God, how can you say we should reach out to these people?" But like, guys, I was personally targeted by these same forces. And I'm telling you that sitting up here and calling every Trump voter a bigot and all that sort of stuff is helping them more than it's hurting them. Trust me, there's a way to deal with this stuff. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. Yeah. But, but yeah, I was such a part of the right-wing demonology by that point that just saying that you like Van Jones was a, 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 a disqualifying mark <laughs> against Meg Whitman, who was running for governor. Uh, and uh, it was just ridiculous. So, but that time, and this is... You, you, Going back to this part of the book, which I thought was really was really uh, great of you to write about, was this is a dark time. For oh, you. terrible! De- depressed for months. Yeah, a year. Uh, a year. Yeah. And uh, what did you do to try and pull yourself out of it before you got the call from yeah. the purple one? Well, you know, Prince called me right after I left the White House um, and had me come to Paisley Park, and I talk about it in the book, you know, and um, he, you know, he gave me a lot of encouragement. Um, and you never, didn't know him at all. At I did. I, listen, he had been a supporter of Green for All. We had never sat down and had a conversation. Okay. He had been a supporter of Green for All. Uh, he, he was an anonymous donor to so many different causes. Nobody knew that. And I didn't know that until you know until he tried to give us some money, and I refused to take it until, until it was revealed where the money came from. That's all in the book as well. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, so you know, he, he really encouraged me, and he saw the fact that the right wing had come after me so hard not as a mark of shame, but as a badge of honor. He's like, this guy, you know, must have something going for him. And uh, um, so, yeah, it took me a a year to get my legs out from me. Listen, depression is a real thing. And I don't think we talk about this stuff enough. You know, if somebody has a cold or a flu or cancer or a broken leg, there's no shame in talking about it. You know, maybe it's it's inconvenient. You know, maybe you wish you didn't have it. But there's no way, oh, I'm so ashamed. You know, I broke my toe. You know, your brain is an organ. And you go into a chemical depression, what it means is the chemicals in your brain are all messed up. And, I mean, listen, man, every day was so hard, man. I felt like, I mean, I I loved the end of the day because I could just get into bed and just hopefully turn it all off. Hated for the sun to come up. And it felt like every day, um, you know, I had two choices. I was either upside down in a sewer or I was right side up in a sewer. That was the difference between a good day and a bad day. 
And, you know, it took me a year to get out of it. I'll tell you, the thing that did the most good for me, I never, they wanted to put me on drugs. I said, you know, I've never even had a beer. I've never, you know, I mean, I've never had a sip of wine. I don't want to try the drug thing. The thing that wound up making the biggest difference for me, I went to something called the Hoffman Institute, which is like a 10-day kind of, you know, self-reflection, self-improvement program. And that broke the back of the depression. When I came out of there, I felt like, well, I'm in the valley, but I'm out of the sewer. It's a long way to go to get up to, you know, feeling great again. But I don't feel miserably terrible every day. But I wish more people would talk about it because, you know, you go through this stuff, you know, you lose a loved one or you lose a job or something traumatic happens. And then, you know, everybody says, oh, well, it's tough. But people don't get into how tough it can be. And I want people to know you can get through this stuff, you know, know, exercise, medication, counseling. There is a life past depression, and I'm living that life right now. And uh, it gives me a lot more empathy empathy and sympathy for people who are struggling. And I think about these people in the Rust Belt who voted crazy. You know, people are going through a lot in this country, and we need to remember, uh, I I might disagree with your vote, um, but you making a bad vote doesn't make you a bad person. And I'm not going to let your bad vote make me a bad person by cutting off my empathy for you. Uh, We we need to help each other a lot more than we've been doing these past few years. What is that? The first time you you had wrestled with depression? Is that something? Well, that I didn't know what depression was. You know, you know, you, you break up with your girlfriend, you say you're depressed. What you really mean is you're pissed. Yeah. I didn't know, you know, what it was until I had a full on, you yeah. know, you know, bout with it. And uh, so, tell us again what Prince. What did he say to you though? He had a great. There's a great line well, in the book where he says, know, the um, of, you, know, so "You know, that's not so bad." He yeah, kind of said, like that's not so bad. Yeah, but, 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 it, it was, yeah. I mean, we have so you know, I'm at Paisley Park. Of course, yeah, I've been a Prince fan my whole life. And you know, for some of the younger people, like they don't really know who he is. You know, I'm surprised. You know, you got teenagers; they never heard of the guy. I guess kind of like maybe we hadn't heard about James Brown when we were growing yeah, up. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, Prince. You know, Prince Michael Jackson and Madonna ruled the 90s, man. ruled the 80s and the 90s. Yes. And um, so to sit in his house and talk to him, I mean, as close as I'm talking to you, um, you know, when you're feeling like a bug, you know, you know, the, the windshield wiper of the world. Um, he told you to write down. Uh, yeah. Civil- what he said was, um, go, go well, to- first, well, the first thing he said was, you know, you, you asked what he said. He said, um, uh, you know, you look sad. I said, yeah, I'm sad. I lost a great job. And he goes, well. Worst things than that are going to happen to you, man. And I said, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, losing a White House position is kind of a non-trivial event in most people's lives. And he just said, look, you seem like you're a guy that's committed to justice, and this kind of stuff happens to guys like you. And something about him saying, you know, guys like you. And I suddenly realized that he saw me as a category or fitting into a category of people who had, you know, suffered for what they believed in. I'm dealing all this shame and misery and he said, no, actually, you know, uh, he goes, stuff like this probably could happen some more if you, if you keep at it. But he told me, you know, go to Jerusalem. He said, stay there for two weeks. And he said, write down every single thing you think should happen to make the country better. And when you come back, show me the list, and I will help you do it. And I'm going to tell you, true to his word, every single thing I brought back to him, he helped me do, including, you know, uh, reviving Green for All. Uh, launching yeswecode.org, uh, launching Rebuild the Dream, and a bunch of stuff I can't talk about publicly. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this, he was one of the first uh, donors, not because of me, he was one of the first do- donors to, to uh, Black Lives Matter. I mean, he was just an incredible guy. But he took me 
under that purple cape when I needed a place to, to, to I needed a friend, I needed help. And he became, you know, uh, uh, an unbelievable friend. And he, uh, talk about your discussion with him about Trayvon Martin and how that led to uh, your involvement with Silicon Valley. You know, um, everybody, Prince saw everything differently than anybody else. I mean, he had the most original mind. And he, you know, you sit there talking to him, and if you started complaining about something and something negative, he'd look at you like a sober person looking at a drunk person, just like, you know, patient, but kind of annoyed, you know? And um, and everybody was complaining about Trayvon Martin and the whole deal. And he said, you know, Van, when, whenever the media sees a black kid wearing a hoodie, you know, or society, you say, oh, well, there goes a thug. But when they see a white kid wearing the same hoodie, they say, hey, is that Mark Zuckerberg? He said, because white kids wear hoodies all, all over Silicon Valley. They never get shot. Why do you think that is? I said, well, maybe because of racism. Prince goes, well, yeah, could be. Or maybe we haven't created, created enough black Mark Zuckerbergs. Why don't we focus on that as a response to Trayvon? So that the next time they see a black kid wearing a hoodie, they don't know if it's the next Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, he thought in these incredible visions. And he said, I want to do a concert. 25,000 young people from the hood, all wearing hoodies, who have been trained in computer science to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. I want to do 25,000 kids on the East Coast, 25,000 kids in New Orleans, 25,000 kids in Chicago, and 25,000 kids um, somewhere on the West Coast. 100,000 young people all wearing hoodies, all trained to be computer coders. And we're going to call it Yes, We Code. And um, it was an amazing vision, and we've been you know, working to try to implement it um, since, you know, for, for years while he was alive and after he left, he departed. But think about that. Everybody's mad. Everybody's upset. And he cues in on the fashion statement of the hoodie and then comes up with an idea that's not red, it's not blue, it's purple. Who can be mad at kids responding to this by getting better educated and trying to get jobs in Silicon Valley. So that was his genius. His politics were never red, never blue. Republicans and Democrats danced his music um, because he was always able to find that way through that was radical and yet unifying. And I, and I learned from him, you can be very radical in your commitments to helping the people who are at the bottom, white, black, or otherwise, but also be unifying in what the solution can be. And I learned that. I saw that with Obama. I saw that with Prince. And another uh, a key person in your life, which is an unlikely pairing, I remember we talked about this years ago, and you finally wrote about it more in the book, is Newt Gingrich. Yes. You're, 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 you had your comeback, one of the great comebacks in America. And it was a very, very quick one, too. Three years, you're on CNN. Yep. See, three years, right? Yeah, about. Yeah, three or four yeah, years. About. Um, uh, in the reboot of uh, Crossfire on CNN with one of your longtime idols, Newt Gingrich. And remember you telling me this uh, years ago, uh, were you... When you were a young street activist in yes. San Francisco, Newt Gingrich was your hero. He w- explained why. Because he came out of nowhere. I mean, I'm a Southern kid. He came out of Georgia. Um, when he came on the scene, the Republicans had, been, you know, had not been, in my lifetime, had not run the House of Representatives. In my lifetime. And he comes on the scene, this you know, young, brash, you know, backbencher, and comes up with a strategy and takes over the entire Congress. And I said, I hate everything he stands for, but this is a bad MF. And what I noticed 
was all my liberal and progressive and radical and revolutionary friends, they had one assessment of Newt Gingrich, that he's bad, awful person. And that was it. They had no understanding what a strategy was, no understanding of how he how he pulled it off. It was like they just he was like a like a like a, a bird flew over and pooped on their head. Like they just no sense of how this had emerged. So I got every book that he had written. I got every article. This is back you know you, know, you had to work hard to get information. Yeah, yeah. I went I went and found every article that had been written about him, and I did a self study course on Newt Gingrich. And I realized this dude for fifteen years had been patiently planning this thing. He had taken over a group called GoPack um, and converted it into a serious political operation with satellite television, with videotape, audio tape. This is when that was really advanced, man. This is before the Internet. And he was sending these videos and audio cassettes. He was personally going and recruiting um, uh, uh, car salesmen and, and, and coaches to run uh, for office and personally getting them ready to do it. So I said, well... And then he had a course called Renewing American Civilization, a whole course to explain his worldview to people. This was bouncing off satellites, and we never knew. And I said, this dude is amazing. And so I just made it my personal mission. Every time he put out a book, I'd buy it and read it. Every time he gave a speech, if I could find it, I'd listen to it. <laughs> and so because I want to beat this guy. I'm like, this is the guy. To be the best, you got to beat the best. And he's never going to be president of the United States, but he was able to build a serious machine. And I said, I want to be a part of something like that. So I, when I met him, it was this crazy experience of meeting somebody who I literally had studied his entire career. And now I'm going to be on TV debating him in real life the way I've been debating him in my head on the BART trains for, for <laughs> a decade. So what was – tell what you said when you met him, when you, you know, your first intro to him at the show – what did well, you say to him? Well, look, I got, freaked him out. Well, look, I got to leave something for the book, man. You got to have me basically look, give away all look, the look, stories look, in the book. <laughs> I'm not going to give away all the stories in the book. You got to read. All right, you will have to read the book for that yeah. for that encounter. Okay, um, let's let's talk a little bit more about the, the book in, in general. The, the first parts of it are an open letter to uh, one, two open letters. One open letter to liberals. And one to conservatives, of course. I love the one to liberals more because that call's coming from inside the house. Yep. And and uh, now the let's one a couple of things. Well, the big issue now is one of them is uh, Bernie versus Hillary. That's still being fought all over the place. What can both these sides learn from each other? Look, I think that um, Bernie's supporters um, think that the reason he lost was because the DNC cheated. And I'm sure the DNC, mainly, especially Debbie, did whatever they could uh, to uh, put marbles on the stairs and banana peels on the sidewalk for Bernie. Um, so I, I am, you know, I'm not a defender of the DNC in any way, in any shape or form. But you, you, there is a problem when you don't recognize that the other half of his challenge was he just wasn't able at that point in his career, might be different today, to get black votes in the South. And this party is disproportionately African-American. And the Clintons had put in the work over decades to build up those relationships with black, not just African-Americans, but African-Americans who knew how to move voters to the polls. Bernie was reaching out to, when he finally was reaching out, mainly to you know, black celebrities, to black activists, to black intellectuals. People had good principles, but they didn't have good precinct operations. And so you've got to acknowledge that at that point, now this has nothing to do with, with, with Bernie, you know, who he is today, but 
you know, three years ago, he did not have strong ties to the black community, and that cost him. You got to acknowledge that. The Clintons, on the other hand, have got to acknowledge that they botched this thing so badly in terms of the division between them and the and Sanders people, and they had this false view in their minds that well, you know, Obama beat us and we fell in line. We're going to beat this guy, and he's going to have to fall in line. And what they didn't understand was. Hillary Clinton's people were going to vote for a Democrat anyway because they were—they're older. They've already party identified. Sanders people—they ain't you know, nobody's, you know, fan club. These are people who are independent. They're young. They're idealistic, and you're going to have to figure out some way uh, to really reach out. You know, use your VP pick to really reach out, really listen to them. And what happened was, you know, Hillary Clinton kept giving giving them policy concessions. Oh, well, you know, we'll fight harder for student loans or whatever. But she wasn't doing as good a job at giving them the process concessions, you know, talking about big money, like the, the things that they really cared about, you know. And so it, 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 there's a lot, I think, for both sides to reflect on. Do you think Bernie could have won the presidency, one-on-one up against Trump? Just don't know. And I'll tell you why. Had, he, had it been Trump, don't forget now, had it been Trump versus Sanders, Bloomberg would have got in. You'd have had a big billionaire centrist jump into the fight. We don't know who he would have taken votes from. Yeah. I mean, and, and what I do know is that it would have been Bernie versus two billionaires. It wouldn't have been Bernie versus Trump. Right. That's my point. Um, and so uh, people forget that, um, you know, Bernie had never been seriously blasted um, the way that, you know, the Koch brothers would have probably spent a billion dollars just to stop Bernie. Yeah, and his oh. his backstory is almost as radical as yours. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, almost. I mean, we could have He's a foot almost, race over. Almost to the left of Pluto. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And so, 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 what would have happened if you had Bernie running against Bloomberg, who's a billionaire, Trump, who's a billionaire, and the Koch brothers would have just spent their own billion to stop him? Right. Could he have won? Maybe, but I don't think it's so easy to say. Well, if it just been Bernie, it all have been it all have been fine. I don't I don't know if that's true. One of the things you talk about about ways people can get together, left and right is working on justice issues. And you tell us about how you've gotten back into some of those issues or how you did a few years ago with the help of someone who is now the mayor of Mill Valley. You know, um, it was kind of sure. challenged you personally on this. Yeah, well, you know, Jessica Jackson Sloan, who's now the mayor of Mill Valley, um, I met her a few years ago. She's a young, uh, scrappy uh, human rights activist. Um, Sorry. Young, scrappy. Uh, so, so listen, I met... Uh, Jessica Jackson Sloan, um, when she was you know, fresh out of law school, she's now the mayor of Mill Valley and a rising star um, and a huge leader now in the criminal justice field nationally. But, um, you know, she, she met me and challenged me and said, hey, listen, um, you used to work on criminal justice. Now you're just on TV. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what, are you, what are you doing? What, what, you know, what are you, you going to do about this ongoing crisis? As a result, we created a campaign called hashtag cut50, cut50.org. And if anybody cares about criminal justice, we've got a, now a national 40-state network. We work with everybody from Newt Gingrich to, to uh, Elizabeth Warren um, uh, to, to um, you know, Cory Booker, you name it, on these issues. Uh, Alicia Keys, I mean, you name it. Um, and Jessica Jackson Sloan is just an amazing uh, leader, um, and she's somebody who I'm very proud uh, to work with at the Dream Corps. That's one of the things to say. You want me to you want to give away everything in the book. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to tell you. Um, I mean, I'm glad you read the book, but I want to read, read the, the book. damn book. Yeah, read so the, I'm not going to go fantasy. and give away, give away every story in, in, right. in the book because it's an important book for people to read. Um, what I will say is that I don't come to my positions 
just based on my own uh, intuitions. And, you know, I'm a part of an organization. I'm a part of the Dream Corps. And the Dream Corps is located in Oakland, California. We run campaigns that are based on real solutions and bridging, uh, building bridges to get there. So whether it's Yes, We Code, which we already talked about, whether it's Green for All, which we already talked about, Cut 50, uh, the Love Army, the Dream Corps is, you know, we're a 6 to $7 million operation um, that is every day trying to win real victories for real people. And that's why if, you, if I seem different than most people on television or if I come across different even for most progressives, I'm in the fight every day trying to get real victories. In order to get real victories, you sometimes have to go against the conventional wisdom of the left and the right. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? Some of the, the things that, that people can get together and one well, last thing? I do think that people um, uh, people don't know what to do. Um, I think the biggest mistake that we're making is that we keep thinking it's because that we're in the situation we're in because too many bad, mean people are doing too much bad, mean stuff. And there are bad, mean people doing bad, mean stuff, especially in the White House. But that's not the main problem. That's a problem. The main problem is that there are too many good people, tens of millions of good people in both parties who don't know what to do at all. And so the book, the last third of the book, is literally just a big resource guide um, and a set of and set of ideas of what we can do right now to make a difference. Um, whether you're talking about the opioid crisis and the addiction crisis, which killed Prince, but also killed people in the coal mining communities that I work with. Um, whether you're talking about you know criminal justice reform in the court system, Republicans and Democrats agree that we should do something about that. Whether you're talking about the fact that none of our kids are really being properly prepared for the jobs of tomorrow. You know, you're talking about going to Mars and robots and artificial intelligence. Our kids aren't learning that stuff, not anywhere near the right numbers and depth. So there's real reform. You can stay a Republican. I can stay a Democrat. We can fight from 9 to noon on all the stuff we disagree on, and we should. But from noon to 3, could we work on the stuff where we actually already agree and get something done? And we can go back to fighting for dinner. But at no point should we be in a country or a situation where we are disagreeing so violently about so many things that vast areas of common ground beyond the battleground go untended to. And so you got more funerals than you should in America with this addiction crisis, more people behind bars than you should with the incarceration crisis, more people out of work than you should have with this jobs crisis, and we're still just fighting about deletes half the time. And so part of the reason that I you know, wrote this book this is not a book to just adorn somebody's bookshelf. This is a working manual for how to get out of this Trump slump, how to, for us as, Repub- as, as, as Democrats to think about things differently so we can win, and how Republic- Republicans can think about things differently so they don't have nut jobs like Trump taking over their party because Bannon is coming with more of it. So this is a book for if you're on the left or on the right. And by the way, if you have somebody in your life who you no longer are speaking to over politics and politicians. You get a copy of the book, send them a copy of the book. There's something in there to kick their butt, and there's something in there to kick your butt, and you can actually start getting a conversation going again. And that's why I wrote the book. It's called Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart and How We Come Together. There we go. And uh, that's, that's, there's your, your Christmas book. For the uh, yep. for the conservative or the liberal in your, exactly. in your life, it's something so you could make uh, Thanksgiving a little more tolerable. Um, thanks, Van, for coming in. Yeah, Great man. to see Good you to again and catch up. And uh, for the for the latest turn in your in your life, 
thank you for listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our guest was Van Jones. Read more local political coverage and subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. I've got to get the, uh, that right, right? Uh, I'm Joe Garfoli, and as Van Jones knows, it's all political, right, Van? It's, it's all political. It's all political. Hey, I want to thank our guest, Van Jones, today. It was great to catch up with him. He said, you know, every time we talk, there's always something crazy going on, whether it's the high in his life or a low in his life, and it's, it's great to loop back. Check out his new book, Beyond the Messy Truth. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in there, a lot that we covered, a lot that we didn't. And remember, no matter where you are or what you're doing, it's all political. You've been listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive producer is Fernando Diaz. Our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. And our producers are Peter Hartlaub, Brittany Schell, and Claire Varellis. It's all political's theme music. We have theme music. It's called Cattle Call by Randy Clark's Crow Song. The Chronicle's Josh Zucker, who is our podcast's musical director, is on bass. If you like what you heard, good news, there's more. Listen to Chronicle podcasts and get bonus content at sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts, plural, or subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or other streaming services.